We'll be continuing today our meditation on the awesomeness of Jesus. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you now. Um, I, I hope in every heart with anticipation, and if it's not there, if that eagerness of anticipation, that, that joy of expectation, that hunger and thirst is not there in any heart that's here in this room, I pray that you would be abundant in your grace and give it. Give us all, Father, that hunger and thirst to see Jesus again, to, to glory in him, to exalt in his, his power and his mercy. We have never seen anything, we never will see anything like this. Again, not in another person. We never would have, by our instinct or intuition, imagined that this could be, that God would come to us in the flesh and be with us and show to us your glory. But you have sent your Son and you have given us the record, the perfect Word of God. Now I pray that you would plant this Word concerning your Son's glory in every single heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. And may we, each one of us, be compelled to worship you alone 
and to tell all we can of the great things that you have done for us in Christ. Help us, we ask, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The demonic presence in the Gospels is particularly intense, isn't it? It it really is incredible, and I think we take it for granted. I think that we are so used to the, the narrative of the Gospels that we miss it. How the demonic activity in that's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is seriously escalated over what we see, say, in comparison to the Old Testament. It seems as though Satan has deployed all his forces in the first century and concentrated them in the area of Palestine. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That you know, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the promised one has finally come. Satan's not about to lay low. And just, you know, let him have his way. He is going to resist. Now, he has already come to Jesus, tempted him, and Jesus overcame. But it says that after the devil left, he was waiting for a more opportune time. So he certainly came against Jesus personally with his attacks. But not only is he coming against Jesus personally, but he is deploying his his hordes throughout the region possessing many who are lost, because that's who Jesus is here for. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And if Satan can destroy them, his thought is that he will defeat the purposes of Christ in redemption. Now, this is not the heart of this message this morning, but I do want to give us a note of instruction about Satan himself. Um, It is essential to our spiritual growth in Jesus that we be aware of Satan, of his tactics and his schemes. We we don't want to make the mistake, on the one hand, of attributing everything wrong that happens in this world to Satan or to demons. Like that there is a demon behind every bush and every moral failure in someone, every addiction or immoral obsession, you know, that person has their personal demons and so on. If we blame every tragedy, every accident, every sin even, to Satan and his demons personally, we are attributing to Satan much more power than what he actually has. And we are really playing into his hand. Because if we do that and say, it's all Satan's fault, we are missing a lot concerning the world and our own flesh and so on. I think, however, that the more common error is not to blame everything on Satan. That is the tendency for some. But in our materialist age, our materialist generation, the more common error is to be completely unaware of Satan's activity, to dismiss him outright, even to deny his existence. And this plays equally into his hand. Um, Think about it. Just as the state of our world cannot be explained apart from the God of the Bible, for how else besides God can you explain beauty and truth and goodness, the abundance of it and the order of it apart from the God of the Bible? Just so, 
how can you explain the state of our world, the opposition to goodness, and the twisting of beauty, and the undermining and and twisting of truth? How can you explain that apart from the biblical figure we know as Satan? So let's not make either one of those errors to blame everything on him and look for a demon behind every bush and under every rock. And let's certainly not dismiss him entirely because he is the lion that is on the prowl seeking whom he may devour and he will devour every soul that denies his existence. Now of all the exorcisms that Jesus performed This is the greatest concentration of demonic opposition that Jesus ever faced. And it's incredible because never did the enemy look so powerless and pathetic as at this moment in this deliverance. It is awesome. It is so awesome that when Jesus sends this man back out to tell everyone how much God has done for him, all this man can talk about is Jesus Christ and his glory and his awesomeness. This really is an incredible salvation. And it serves as a pattern for our salvation. Essentially, every salvation, every Every condition outside of Christ is like this, and every deliverance is like this. Each and every one of us who is in Christ has been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And just like Jesus sent out this healed man, so he sends out all of us healed men and women and children to tell the world how much God has done for us in Jesus Christ, his son. Let's get into this text, okay? After Jesus had calmed the the squall at sea, that was what we had looked at in verses 22 to 25, Jesus and his disciples continued on their journey and landed on the opposite shore in Gentile territory. As soon as Jesus stepped on shore, a man who is possessed by demons meets him. And you look over this text and the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, and you see that this unclean spirit has absolutely robbed this man of everything. He doesn't have a personality of his own anymore. He doesn't have any dignity left. He doesn't have a will of his own. He has no control left. His life has been absolutely ravaged. He is... Naked has been for a long time. He has, he is more at home with the dead than anywhere else. He is a terror and he has been completely rejected by society. Mark's account adds these details. Verses four and five, Mark five. He says, no one could bind him anymore. So they started to. They, they, they had him in chains and shackles. But he says no one could bind him anymore. No one had the strength to subdue him. And listen to this. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It does seem that 
I, I can't speak to this dogmatically, but it does seem that if people were once able to subdue him, but by this point not able to subdue him anymore, that the infiltration and the overtaking of his life was a gradual process. Uh, we don't know how long it took, but I think that's an inference that we can draw. Again, not dogmatically, but it looks that way. So, why him? Why did Satan target this individual? We don't really know. And how did it happen that he was so overtaken? Maybe, maybe he gave himself a little over to the devil at a time. Little here of his life, a little there, until he had no will left of his own. But whether he was complicit in this process or not, maybe he was. Looking at his life, you can't help but feel compassion for this man. When you read like the description that I read earlier from Mark, night and day among the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. And I'll, I'll tell you why we should be able to feel sympathy for this individual because he is such a reflection of our spiritual selves before we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness. He is such a reflection of who we are outside of Christ. Naked, exposed in the guilt of our sin without any covering of righteousness. Showing some semblance of control, maybe, but truthfully, spiritually, absolutely controlled a slave of sin and unrighteousness. Running, but not free, without rest, true rest, without home, without peace. And when we look at this case objectively, taking into account all of this detail, and even comparing it, Say Mary Magdalene, the Bible says she had been, had seven demons, which seven and, and seven served as a picture of that complete domination. But this man, you multiply that control exponentially in this man's case. This is, by all objective reckoning, this is one of those impossible cases. It's an impossible case. I know that you have, within your loved ones, the impossible cases. I have the impossible cases in, in people that I dearly love, who are so far from Jesus, where you can't, it's hard for you to actually picture them in their right spiritual mind. Right? And you, you pray for them. And you've spoken to them. And you've prayed for them for so long. And it feels like the impossible case. But I want to bring to you the same question that Jesus brought to his disciples back on the boat when he said to them, Where is your faith? It's true. No man can save them. And in his case, no one wanted to. But Jesus can and Jesus wants to. So for all of the impossible cases, 
turn to him and plead with the one who reached down and saved your soul and call upon him to save these, the impossible cases. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. You remember, again, the response of the disciples when Jesus had calmed the storm at sea. They said at the end, who is this? That was the right question. Now look who is supplying the right answer. It's the unclean spirit acknowledging that he is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, when we look back into this narrative at verses 28 and 29, verse 29 indicates that Jesus had already commanded the spirit to come out of the man before the the demon, the spirit, talked back. So in every other encounter that we have seen in Luke's gospel so far, when Jesus meets up against any opposition whatsoever, he commands and immediately the thing is gone or it leaves or it's cured or whatever, whether you're talking about storm or sickness, even death itself. Every other encounter, Jesus speaks. And we have said over and over again, we've talked about the astonishing authority of his word and nothing resists it. So here we see our first delay, the delay of obedience. Now, it's on the surface, and only on the surface, that this doesn't look good for Jesus. By no means does this delay of obedience mean that Jesus is meeting something more his match. I think we can, we can say, aside from death itself, this would be the greatest opposition he faced. Although maybe we'd, it'd be a toss-up between this and the, the storm at sea. But aside from death, I mean, what an incredible opposition. This, that, but it doesn't mean that he is meeting more of his match. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'll go so far as to say that even though the expulsion of the demon isn't immediate, like the other exorcisms that we see in Luke's gospel are, it's here in the delay of obedience that we actually see how completely dominating the power of Jesus is. First, we're going to look at who this spirit opponent is exactly, and then we're going to consider why it doesn't leave immediately. Jesus asked the name of the unclean spirit. And the response is that he is legion, indicating that a horde of demonic opposition is in this man's life, in his person. A legion in the Roman army was 5,600 soldiers. Now, as this spirit calls himself legion, it doesn't mean necessarily that exactly 5,600 demons are possessing this man. But it does mean that a great horde of these demons, whom Satan, prince of demons, employs, is wreaking havoc in this one individual soul. 
Okay? So that's who this spirit opponent is. A great horde of those whom Satan employs. Now, second, why the delay? Why doesn't the unclean spirit go out immediately? Because they need to know where they can go. Where they are permitted to go. And they beg that it not be the abyss. They beg for that. And so, the delay is not showing that Jesus has met more of his match. The delay in obedience is not a challenge to his authority whatsoever. This has everything to do with the fact that our adversary Satan does not make a move except God permits him. That's why the delay. And the legion here knows that Christ's next word has the power to hold them forever. In fact, in Matthew's account, the question that they ask is, have you come here to torment us before the time? So, Satan and all of his hordes, demons, they know that they are going to face the eternal wrath and judgment of God. And there is that time appointed. Hence the question, have you come to torment us before the time? And so they beg not to be sent into the abyss. The abyss is another word for hell. It is the abode of the unbelieving dead and the captive demons. And so they beg not to be sent to their judgment before the time. They want to escape it for now. So they ask to be sent into the herd of pigs that's on the hillside. Mark says that this herd actually numbers 2,000, which is another indication of a great horde of demons, even though we can't put an exact figure on it, a great horde of demons is possessing this man. So they beg not to be sent into the abyss, and they end up, as we know, in the lake. But I'm going to suggest to you, I'm not declaring to you, I'm going to suggest to you that they don't mean end up in the lake. That was an accident. That was not their intent. I have heard many times and and read, I'm sure along with that, that the demon horde drove the pigs into the lake. But I looked carefully. Don't look now. You can look later. At Matthew 8 and Mark 5 and Luke 8 and compared them. And it never says the demonic horde drove the, the pig herd into the lake to end up drowning. So along with that, I'm going to give you a couple more reasons why I think that their des- where they ended up was completely unintentional on their part. For one thing, again, they beg not to be sent into the abyss. There's something about that word that is significant. When you look at the Old Testament Hebrew, the, the equivalent of the Hebrew word for the primeval deep of the sea, and I'm using somebody else's words, is abyss. That's how it gets translated when you go from Hebrew into the New Testament Greek. Okay, so the deep is the abyss. 
why would they ask not to be sent into the abyss and then drive the herd into the abyss, which Jesus had just calmed? Another thing, why ask to go into the pigs at all? If they want to end up in the lake, why don't they just ask to be sent into the lake? Do they need a vehicle to drive into the lake? I don't understand why they would need that that medium to do that. So, just some textual clues. I think that this was unintentional. I don't think that Jesus is being merciful. By no means do I think Jesus is being merciful to the horde that has ruined this man's life for who knows how long, as I have seen suggested. I don't think that. I don't think that Jesus is bargaining with them. Okay, yeah, I'll take the, I'll take the lesser of, you can have, you know, the lesser worst thing. I don't think he's bargaining with them. I think Jesus is playing them. And you might think, someone might think, well, that sounds rather unbecoming of Jesus, but, God does this, and I'll show you more of that in a, in a moment. But I really think that Jesus is playing them. I'm, I'm suggesting it. I'm not declaring it absolutely. But instead of being sent into the abyss, they ask for the pigs. It says Jesus gives them permission. In Matthew, Jesus says one word, go. They enter the pigs, and I believe that unable to control them, this, this pig herd is spooked, pun intended, and they rush headlong into the sea and drown, taking the demons with them. So what happens to the demons? Most commentators agree that this is the end of this demonic horde. Not saying that demonic lungs filled up with water or anything, but most commentators say this is the end of them. They didn't, they didn't escape. How could they have escaped from the drowning froth of pigs in the sea? I know, beautiful picture. Um, they would have had to ask, right? They would have had to ask Jesus. So where did they go from there? I think that they went from the lesser abyss to the ultimate abyss. So what I am suggesting is that they proposed a solution to Jesus. They they were suggesting a way that they could escape temporarily the ultimate judgment to come. And I'm suggesting that their solution actually hastened their demise. That Jesus played them. I am suggesting that in addition to not only looking completely weak next to Jesus, but they look very foolish too. In any case, you may, you might uh, question my thinking, disagree with me. That's fine. But one thing is clear. The delay in obedience is not a challenge to the omnipotence of Christ. It is not a challenge to the Almighty God, to the authority of His Word. The delay in obedience is so that this legion of demons can snivel and whine and beg for their life. They are whimpering before the Lord of heaven and earth. I said to you that I think that Jesus is playing them. In a year or so, something similar is going to happen. Satan is going to be permitted to enter into Judas, and God is going to be playing him. 
He gives him permission to enter into Judas. Judas betrays Jesus and hands him over to the religious authority. The religious Jewish authority then hands him over to Rome and demands that Jesus die. And Rome nails Jesus to a cross to die. And Satan is playing into Christ's hand. Because when he strikes Christ, he strikes his own death knell. He writes his own death certificate in the blood of Christ. Leviathan, who stands for evil in the Old Testament scriptures, is called the plaything of God. Satan is no better. He is played. He is a pawn. Everything that he does against us, Christ turns for us. Because all things, good, evil, pleasant, painful, are worked together by the promise of God for our good, for the good of those who love him. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We are right to fear the enemy. But he is a pawn in God's scheme. Now let's look at the opposite responses to Jesus after this display of power. The herdsmen flee, it says, and they go tell the tale, and the citizens of the country come out, and they want to see what has happened for themselves. And it says in verse 35, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And it even says to build on that note that they were afraid. It says a little later on, if I can locate it, They were seized, in verse 37, with great fear. They couldn't even bind this man anymore. Jesus is not interested in showing off the glory of his power by merely binding the man. Jesus is going to free the man. Daryl Bach writes, in a complete reversal of the previously possessed man's demeanor. He is now clothed, whereas before he had been naked. He is now seated, whereas before he had been roaming. He is now associating with others as he sits at Jesus' feet, whereas before he sought solitude. He is now of sound mind, whereas before he had been crying out in a loud voice. He is now comfortable in the presence of Jesus, where before he wanted nothing to do with him. This is what Jesus does. This is what Christ does. His touch affects all of your life. Because before Jesus, there was not a part of your life that sin left untouched. That's why we call it total depravity. Doesn't mean we are as bad as we can possibly be, like a Hitler outside of Jesus. It means that we are affected by sin in every part. Sin leaves nothing untouched. It affects the mind, the feeling, the reasoning, the desires, the loving, the hating, the relating to God and to others. It affects everything. So now you see it with Christ in salvation. That there is not a part of this man and there is not a part of you and me that he leaves untouched. He affects our loving and our hating. He affects our reasoning and our willing, our affections are relating to God, of course, and to one another as well. And he even 
affects, he impacts, he changes our sense of self. He makes us more human. That's what Jesus does in bringing us into conformity to himself, the truest human of all. The people are frightened now. I'm sure that they wanted that man gone. You know, they didn't want him in the region. But they settled. They were able to get comfortable enough with this man around. But they have no category for the kind of man who can heal. They have no category for this power that Jesus displays. They have no category for this light. David Garland writes, they are clearly more at home with the presence of the demonic in their midst than the presence of a power that can drive it away. What a picture of the unbelieving world. And what a sad report about these people. Now in close of the passage, verses 38 to 39, the man begs again. You remember, of course, it wasn't him necessarily. The demons were controlling his reasoning, personality, and even vocal cords. And he had begged that Jesus not torment him before the time. Now he's begging it again, but it's really him. It's the true him. And he's in complete control of himself. And what does he want? He wants the one thing that the saved, saved men and saved women and saved children want more than anything else. He wants to be with Jesus. This is the ultimate. That's the deepest desire of his soul. Isn't that the deepest desire of yours also? To be with Christ? Isn't that the hope that controls your life? Romans 5 says we are uh, rejoicing in the hope of glory. Our hope is to see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And that's our destination. That's our home. That's where we're headed. Nothing can take that from us. Nothing. That hope, Paul said in Romans 5, will not put us to shame. But Jesus, it says, sent him away. Not to say, you can't be with me, you can't be my follower, but you're going to follow me in a different sense. I'll be with you in a different sense. It says that he sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And then the passage concludes... And he went away, proclaiming through, throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I am sure that this man's concept of God or the gods or whatever had been filtering through his head. At one point, his concept of God was very different before all of this. Now his concept of God is Jesus. When he tells how much God has done for him, all he speaks about is Jesus. He has no other God but Jesus Christ. This is the God who has done all of this for him. I was talking to somebody very recently about God. And the conversation was unfortunately brief. But what their idea or concept of God was. And they really they didn't have 
I'm sure that they had some, uh, some concept of God, but nothing that they could really articulate. Even in a very religious culture like our own, that is pretty common. Have you seen that? Even in a Christian religious culture, that's pretty con- common. That the, Their concept of God is, is very fuzzy. You know? If, if I said to you, okay, you believe in God, what do you, what do you mean by God? What do you understand about God? Who do you know Him to be? When we talk about God, are we talking about a Him? Or a Her? Or an It? Are we speaking of Creator or Creature? Something spirit or material? Is this measurable or immeasurable? Is, is God made of stuff or is God the maker of all things? So here is the answer, and it's straight from Luke's gospel. I love this. I love how this passage ends because Luke is so not being subtle. You know how sometimes the, um, the, the equivalent, the, the affirmation of who Jesus is and his deity is subtle, but Luke is not being subtle here. This man is not being subtle. The God who does for us is Jesus. As someone I quoted recently said, I can't remember his name, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. You look into Christ, you look into his face, and you see the face of God, the radiance of his glory. Now I'm not saying that God is one person taking three different forms or modes. Historically that's called modalism. It's a heresy. I'm not saying he is one person in three different modes. God is three persons. There is one God in three persons, eternal persons, eternally distinct persons, co-equal persons, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. But by the Spirit, through the Son, we see the Father. And there is no more to see of God than what we see in Jesus Christ. That's why the Gospels are so amazing. God is in the flesh. God is on the ground. God is speaking. God is doing. And there's no more. It's like what we sang earlier and how firm a foundation. Um, what more can he say than to you he has said? We could put it like this. What more can he show than to you he has shown? We shouldn't think, okay, when we get to heaven, we'll see Jesus, and then we'll see the Father, and that's going to be, you know, the eclipsing moment. That's going to be the, the epiphany. No, it's seeing Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the image of the invisible God. So maybe if you were studying Exodus this morning in Sunday school, and maybe it got mentioned, or maybe you've read recently, Exodus 25, when the elders of Israel go up into the mountain and they, they see this spectacular, fantastic image that is, there's, the language is full of symbolism and stuff. It talks about sapphire and uh, a pavement and it's amazing. It's incredible. Who are we seeing? Who is being described? Who are they beholding? Christ, the image of the invisible God. So it's no wonder when Jesus says, go back home, tell how much God has done for you. All this man can speak of 
is Jesus. So tell all. Tell how much God has done for you in Jesus Christ, His Son. Tell how awesome He is. Let's speak clearly and let's speak compellingly. The only thing worse, I guess, than not speaking the gospel at all would to be, to speak it, to speak of it like it's an everyday thing. Like it's just another thing. An option. One of the items on the menu. You know, the gospel. Choose this way. It'll be tasty. You'll like it. Might improve your life. You'll feel good. How drab. How boring. Let's speak clearly. And let's speak compellingly. Let's behold the glories of God in the face of Jesus and be so overwhelmed ourselves that it comes spilling out to people. Let's tell them how awesome Jesus is. Where do we start when we tell them? How much God has done for us. Where do we start? We start with what Paul called a first importance. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus. His life for us. His death for us. His burial on our behalf, and His resurrection from the grave. That's where we start with what is of first importance. We tell them how we have been saved by the new birth. God justifying us in Christ and redeeming us, freeing us from the captivity of sin in Christ and adopting us into His own family, making us His heirs. Man, that's a lot. It's a lot, right? And really... Not only should we know where to start when we talk about how much God has done for us, but we should also know that once we start, there's really no end to it. There is no end to how much God has done for us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, ours in Christ. Ladies, you're about to study that on Wednesday nights. I'm jealous. John said in the close of his gospel, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I used to think not very long ago that that was hyperbole, a literary overstatement. John doesn't mean us to understand him literally. Like a whole world? Come on couldn't contain the books that would be written about the work of Jesus. I don't think it is hyperbole at all. I think John means it at the very core of his being. Because if you start talking about how much God has done for you, when would you end? That's what eternity is for. Do you think that we are ever going to run out of praises to the infinitely glorious, infinitely loving, merciful, gracious, powerful, wise, holy God. We will never run out of praises. How can we not know what to say when we speak of the good that God has done for us? You name a single good in your life. You owe it to God. 
There is no good gift that you have, but God has given it. So there's no end. So let us go into the world and let us proclaim clearly, compellingly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with all of His boldness, how much God has done for us in Jesus. And remember, remember this. With men, every soul is impossible. All of them. But with God, there is no soul that's impossible to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of Christ that you have not withheld from us. You show us. You've declared it. And it is the most awesome sight for our spiritual eyes. I pray, Father, that there wouldn't be a blind eye. I I pray, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, whatever scales are over our eyes, I pray that they would drop like when Ananias laid his hand upon Saul and prayed for him who would become Paul and the scales just dropped from his eyes. I pray that it would happen for our hearts. I pray, Father, that every eye would see the glory of God and Jesus. I pray, Father, that whatever resistance we have to him and to the work, the mission that you call us to, I pray that that resistance would crumble and we would be glad for it. And I pray, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, we would burst over those walls that have fallen in our hearts and we would go out telling everyone how awesome Jesus is to save. Lord, please, would you save those in our community who are yet caught in the depths of spiritual darkness. Lord, we we look around in our own families, maybe outside of this community. We think about those that we love in our own families who seem to be the impossible cases. And if the legion horde falls at the word of Christ, whimpering, and the man is delivered, then there is no soul impossible for you to save. Would you be merciful to them? And would you save them? And would you be gracious to us and use us as your witnesses? We ask in Jesus' name. For his sake, amen.